And yet, they don't understand that Jesus has come with a radically different agenda. The people have shouted, Hosanna in the highest, laid down their cloaks as He entered the city, signifying that they are ready for Jesus to be their king, their leader. They think He's going to assemble an army and overthrow the oppressive Roman government. Instead, Jesus goes to the temple, God's dwelling place in the minds of the Jews, and proceeds to run all of the religious leaders and money changers out of the temple. He cleanses the temple. He does not acknowledge their authority. He does not acknowledge their place as religious, rightful religious leaders. He rebukes their false doctrine and begins teaching the truth. The leaders don't like this. <laughs> they love power, they love money, they love prestige and the praises of men. And so, political enemies and re religious, different religious sects of Judaism decide to band together and get rid of this Jesus because he's upsetting the apple cart. He's, he's leading the people against the religious leaders of Israel. And so they know they can't just grab him. Rome's not going to crucify Jesus for blasphemy. So they need to devise a plan that will get the people to hate Jesus. And so they start working on a strategy in private to lead a propaganda campaign against Jesus, much in the way in our modern politics where you see a smear campaign. How can we get a politician to say something? That one soundbite we can play over and over and over again that will dash their chances at winning the election. Except the stakes are higher here. They want Jesus dead. How do you get people who were shouting Hosanna in the highest to crucify him a week later? And so we're going to see the first of three plots this week, first of three attempts to discredit uh, Jesus in the eyes of the people. So let me read the Word of God to you, Mark twelve thirteen. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. It's the word of the Lord. This is not a message about taxes. This is not a message about taxes, though your taxes are due April 15th. You should pay your taxes. It's not a message about taxes. We often run to this passage as a proof text 
When you get those Christians who say, I'm not paying taxes, my taxes are used for evil purposes, therefore I shouldn't pay my taxes. We could go off to Starbucks and have a five-hour conversation over this topic, and it would, it would be a wonderful one of those political uh, conversations. And at the end of the five hours, we'd probably agree on most things and some things we wouldn't. And we could come back the next day and keep talking and talking and talking about this. We could talk about whether or not it was just and honorable for our founding fathers to, to start a revolution over taxes. And uh, we'd be very careful as we talked because uh, we wouldn't want to say anything that would offend a patriot. And so we're not going to talk about that in the pulpit. We're going to talk about hypocrisy because that's what this passage is really about. It's not about taxes. The taxes were just the way they were going to get Jesus in trouble with the people, just like I could get myself in trouble with you talking about taxes for too long. Okay? But I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. My paycheck comes from from state workers here, a lot of you, who are paid by taxes. So it doesn't mean I wouldn't be afraid to speak out against injustice or evil. But again, this is not a passage about taxes. It's a passage about hypocrisy. In fact, the word hypocrisy kind of appears at the height, the middle of the passage. And in Jewish storytelling, they always save kind of the main point for the middle of the passage. Nathan's learning that in his Hebrew class right now. So, hypocrisy. This will either be an exciting message for you or one that uh, is very convicting. Nobody likes a hypocrite. And yet, to some extent, we are all guilty of hypocrisy. hypocrisy. We are not talking, though, about any one of us as a rank hypocrite where we are known as hypocrites. It's the pattern of our life. I would have to assume that if anyone here fell under that category, a good, loving brother or sister would have confronted you by now, according to the Lord's commands in Matthew 18, to confront your brother in sin. We today are going to look at rank religious hypocrites. Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians the chief priests, elders, scribes, so that by looking at an extreme example of hypocrisy, we will be able to detect hypocrisy in our own heart, more subtle hypocrisy. Okay, so that's our plan this morning. First, we need to define hypocrisy because people throw the term around. I'm not always sure that we're working with the same definition. So a hypocrite is a person who pretends to have virtues, moral or religious beliefs or principles that he or she does not actually possess, especially a person whose actions belie those stated beliefs. So they say one thing, but they do another. They preach one thing, they practice the opposite. They're one way in their uh, public life a different way in their public life. That would be a hypocrite. Also, a person who feigns some desirable or publicly approved attitude, especially one whose private life opinions or statements belie his or her public statements, much the same as the first de uh, definition, just a slightly different shade 
there. What's interesting is this word comes from the Greek for a stage actor, somebody who pretends to be something they're not. So before it took on kind of a pejorative, derogatory connotation, it was, you know, just the word for an actor. So you're a hypocrite. The actor would not be offended. That's what they were called. But it's a great word, isn't it, for somebody who's pretending to be something they're not. Ironically, our modern-day actors are often very hypocritical. Uh, they, they make these statements, these political statements, and then you find out later in the Inquirer or whatever tabloid, they are living completely different lives. In fact, our entertainment industry entertains us on the big screen, but sometimes their lives are more entertaining than some of the movies they make. Politicians, likewise, we, we cannot stand a political hypocrite. Sadly, we almost come to expect that our politicians are going to lie to us, sadly. But when it's hypocrisy, that is an especially ugly kind of lie. To say they live one way, and then in their private life, they live, you know, another way. I'm for the common man, and as they fly off in their private jet, you know, I'm all about the environment in my 40,000 square foot home, and so on. We could go on and on with examples. We, we just hate that. It just makes our skin crawl, right? Hypocrisy. Like, lying's bad enough. I can deal with that. But at least if you'll admit you're a liar. And when the, when the Tiger Woods scandal broke, it's like, oh, here's this guy portraying himself as this good, clean-cut, you know, smart, educated at Stanford, uh, drives a Buick. <laughs> plays golf and good family man uh, not so much it's almost better when Charles Barkley back when I was a kid just came forward and said hey I'm not a role model you know well that's not right either Charles but at least he was honest you know he's like you know I'm a scoundrel and I know it but to lie and say you're virtuous when you're really not virtuous it's just detestable. And us being made in the image of God, it's no surprise when we find out from the pages of Scripture that God especially detests hypocrisy, especially religious hypocrisy. And he saved his strongest rebukes for the religious hypocrites of his day. In fact, he extended much grace and mercy to tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. It was the religious leaders who got the scathing rebukes from our Lord. Why is that? Well, let's look at God's character and see why this is detestable to him. First of all, God is truth and he hates deceit. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Two of these are obviously about lies, a lying tongue and false witness, but those who devise wicked plans often use dishonesty and deceit in their planning. Those who sow discord among brothers often use slander, lies, 
to sow that discord. Did you hear what so-and-so said about you? Hmm. Playing both sides of the, the fence to get people upset with one another. So God hates deceit. Who is our enemy? Satan. And he is the father of lies. Father of lies. God is truth, it says in Titus. God is truth. In him there's no lie. He can't lie. So isn't God all powerful? What do you mean he can't lie? I'm not powerful and I can lie. Well, that doesn't make you powerful. It doesn't make me powerful. It means we're weak. Now, it's not that there's a standard of truth out there that's above God. And when God speaks, we go to that standard and say, yes, what he just said was truth. And God always utters truth. No. God is a standard of truth. When he opens his mouth and speaks, only truth comes out because he is the source of truth, the standard of truth. It's an important distinction. He's not truthful. He is truth. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So God detests lying, but he especially hates religious liars. Let's look at Matthew 23. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but you can look on the big screen. And Matthew records uh, Jesus' rebu- uh, rebuke of the religious leaders. Mark records some of these rebukes, but Matthew really lays it all out here. And this is around the same time period as our passage in Mark But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation, even than being in hell, I don't know what that means, and I don't want to know what that means. As a religious leader myself, avoiding hypocrisy is especially uh, an especial fear of the Lord for me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Ouch. This is scathing. It's, It's terrible because it's coming from the mouth of God. It's fearful. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe your mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Oh, you blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These rebukes are so strong that many liberal scholars say Matthew made them up because they just can't imagine Jesus saying that to anyone. Of course, they always 
like to elevate Jesus' love over and above his wrath, his mercy over and above his justice. We would be foolish to ignore this passage as some kind of uh, way of Matthew getting back at the religious leaders because he's a tax collector, and obviously tax collectors were treated harshly by the religious leaders. This is not some bone Matthew has to pick. This is a bone God has to pick with hypocrisy and hypocrites. So God hates lying and deception. We know that. But he especially hates those who uphold God's law while they're looking for loopholes so they can disobey in private. And you know, by this time, the religious leaders weren't even really doing that good of a job of breaking God's law in private. It was pretty much out there for people to see. It's just hard to speak out against the religious leaders of your day. When you've been raised your whole life to say, they know the law, they know God's word, they have the truth, listen to them. This is what happens when you remove the word of God from people's hands. Right? All throughout the history of the church, take the word of God out of people's hands and the religious leaders can tell them anything they want. And people, well, they know. They, they know. It's where you get these strange heresies in, in church history. But the Reformation put the Bible back into the hands of people in their own language. And this is like a Reformation-type church. We want you to examine the Scriptures. Everything said from this pulpit, go home, examine the Scriptures. Be like the good Bereans. So these religious hypocrites, their hearts appear to be close to God when really they couldn't be any farther away. And what makes this section of Scripture so fascinating and compelling is that these folks who say, we know God, we love God, we understand God, we think like God, God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ and says, no, you don't know God. You don't love God. Your ways are far from His ways. And they're saying, how dare you? How could you tell us that? And we're sitting here knowing this is God talking to them. If it wasn't so terrifying, it would just be delicious. The irony is just, wow, do they know they're talking to God? And then finally, why religious hypocrisy is just so detestable to God is because God has set up His prophets and preachers and teachers to lead people to God. And there's nothing worse than those religious leaders misrepresenting God's character. Really? God doesn't want us to heal people on the Sabbath? Really? That's our God? Our God would make a poor widow tithe until she's destitute? That's the God we're serving? Don't tell people that that's who God is. God shows up on the scene and He's gracious and merciful and full of love and compassion, abounding in, in steadfast love and mercy, eager to forgive sinners and celebrating when one sinner repents than when 99 righteous don't need to repent. A number of years ago when I was still in seminary and associate pastor at Christ Community Church in Canoga Park, living in their parsonage with my family. I'd take my car into a big O tire for repairs 
and uh, they said, you're going to have to leave it overnight. So one of their mechanics gave me a ride home. And all the way home, this young man was telling me about how, you know, Big O's just my day job, but at night I'm a DJ, and I, I DJ some of the best parties in the Valley, and he's naming all these celebrities, and I didn't know who they were because they were all rap stars, and the filth coming out of this man's mouth was, well, it was almost hard to ride home with him. And uh, we pull up to the, the house, and the parsonage doesn't look like, you know, a church. But he was like, Dad, this your pad? And I, I said, no, it belongs to the church I work at. His face just went white. <laughs> and then he kind of got mad. He's like, why don't you tell me? You're a man of the cloth. <laughs> and I said, would it, made a, would it have made a difference? And he said, well, I used to go to church. I used to be Catholic. But we'd go in there and we'd worship God. And then we'd come out and all those hypocrites would just send up a storm. And, um, you know, we're supposed to say, well, there's room for one more hypocrite in the church. Why don't you join us? Yeah, but I don't think that's a sufficient answer. We shouldn't be hypocrites. Um, though we know that we're all guilty of hypocrisy from time to time. But, yeah, when we see rank hypocrisy in a church like that, it grieves us. And it does drive people away from the church. Nevertheless, I told the young man, that's no excuse for you. That's no excuse for you the way other people live their lives. Here's what God requires of you. And I gave him the gospel of grace. And he said, I'd never heard that before. I didn't have to work my way to heaven. He said, I'll have to think about that. I said, you do that. You do that. Then he said, I'm going to take extra special care of your car. (laughs) Maybe you can put in a good word for me. And uh, I did pray, you know, pray for him, but I told him, look, I, my prayers aren't any more powerful than, than any other believers, and you can have that access to God yourself by putting your faith in Christ. And ironically, you just committed hypocrisy. You acted one way in private when you found out I was a pastor. You acted a different way because you love the praises of men. And when you're around rap stars, you act one way. When you're around pastors, you act another and he said, yeah, you're right, huh? Yeah. I went to uh, pick up my car. He wasn't working that day, and I followed up, called Big O a few months later. And I had talked to him, and he told me his whole story, how he was separated from his wife, and he doesn't get to see his son, who lives in Ventura. And he was a better man when he was living at home and being a good father. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking. I called... Uh, to follow up, and they said, he doesn't work here anymore. He asked for a transfer to Ventura. Isn't that sweet? So I don't know where he is and where his heart is, but, you know, we, we give the gospel and God gives the increase. Amen? Amen? Amen. I'd like to believe I'm going to meet him one day in glory and meet his wife and, and his son. So as we talk about hypocrisy, I want to give us a few warnings here. Okay, a few warnings. Be very slow to accuse others of hypocrisy. Especially because then they're going to be looking at you for signs of hypocrisy. That would be like the greatest hypocrisy is to accuse people of hypocrisy and then be a hypocrite, you know? It's a very serious charge. Look at the way the Lord talks to the religious leaders. So be very careful wagging the finger of 
hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. doesn't mean we shouldn't judge, but we should judge with grace and mercy and judge our own hearts first before we're quick to judge others. Right? Jesus does say, take the log out of your own eye so that you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. He doesn't say ignore the speck. Also, sometimes we can be blind to our own hypocrisy, especially because we have a tendency to overemphasize certain virtues above others and certain vices above others. You know, so the things we do well, those become the most important virtues. I always like to use this as an example. You're one of those clean freaks. You gotta clean. I gotta clean. Can't stand being in a dirty, messy room. And suddenly, cleanliness is the 11th commandment, right? And anyone who's not clean and organized is in sin, especially if you have to live with the person who's not clean and disorganized, right? And then life gets a little hard, and work piles up, and the laundry piles up, and you haven't dusted, and you haven't vacuumed, and... and hey, you're in sin, right? Or there's certain things you need that they have to be cleaned and organized, but other areas of your house, you've got the junk, the junk drawer that no one can see. Or don't look in that closet. That's where we shove everything before company comes over. So that's, that's just a fun example of, of you know, be careful of our hypocrisy, especially in the area of things that aren't actually sins. They're just certain virtues some of us are born with, and they're natural. If you're a clean person, you have to clean. You can't help it. It's not a virtue. It's a sickness. (laughs) I'm actually one of those people, so preaching to myself here. Also, uh, parents often appear hypocritical to their children. And, and the source of this type of hypocrisy is because your children are immature and we make some certain rules and set certain boundaries because they're not mature enough yet to be able to handle things. And the consequences of some of the sins they might commit are so great that we just make some absolutes. And we say, we are not giving you a smartphone. You cannot handle one. You will be on it all day long You will be surfing the web and texting and you're not going to get anything done and, oh, look at mom and dad on their smartphone all day long. You know, well, that's different. You know, I had business to conduct. I'm texting my coworkers, you know, and uh, sometimes that's legitimate, right? I hope you're not on your cell phone all, all day long. I hope so. But it looks like hypocrisy to your kids. Kids, you, you no, we're not going to go to that movie. You're not going to see that movie. There's questionable content. It's not good for your soul. You know, and then you hire a babysitter and go out and see some rated R movie, and they're like, oh, "How come it's good for your soul and not my soul?" Well, when I get when you get older, you can learn to filter out those things that are bad for your soul, and, and to some extent, that's true. But we also have to be careful that. We're now not using this principle I just talked about 
to get away with things we would never recommend for our children. So just be careful in there. Uh, Being in youth ministry for so long, kids are always accusing their parents of hypocrisy. And sometimes they get it right. They've got like a great hypocrisy detector. They, They hate double standards. But again, sometimes that double standard just has to be there until they grow up. Just a word of caution there. For, uh, I've noticed many parents, they do set those boundaries and they forget to move them as their kids get older and don't shepherd them how to handle these gray areas in life and um, makes it hard for the kids. Um, they either go out into the world and don't know how to handle things and there's nobody there to set the boundaries or they just become exasperated with mom and dad uh, because everything is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So that's a sermon for another time, a parenting class, but obviously a topic near and dear to my heart. What is going on then in the heart? Have we, have we gotten this through to you by now? Every sermon's about the heart. If you don't go to the heart, then all you've preached is moralism, behaviorism. God is interested in the heart. So by now, I hope we've trained you that whenever we see some kind of sin, you immediately go, I wonder what's going on in the heart. What's going on in the heart of the hypocrite? Well, let's go to the Word of God, and Jesus will show us what's in the heart of a hypocrite. Look at Luke 16, 13. Jesus is preaching on the um, love of money. The love of money. And he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. I don't know what the source of the scoffing was, but they found this teaching ridiculous and they were scoffing Probably because when you're guilty of loving money instead of God and you hear someone preaching against it, your first reaction is, oh, right. Like anyone would love money more than God. That's just ridiculous. We all know the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We teach it. We pray it three times a day when we say the Shema. And um, nobody would love money more than God. And yet Jesus tells us they were lovers of money. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. So in the sight of men you say, I don't love money more than God. That's ludicrous. That is sinful. And yet God knows your heart for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So he was accusing them of hypocrisy here. You say to men one thing, but it was obvious to everyone around that these religious leaders were lovers of money. They wore fancy clothes. They had, um, they set up the, the money-changing tables during uh, Passover. I mean, it was, it was always about getting money, getting money, getting money, and using their position and their title to accumulate wealth. Now, they know this is wrong. If they're students of Scripture, they would know this is wrong. And the prophets had preached against greed, especially amongst the religious leaders of Israel. And so they would know that. So what's going on then at the heart? What is this recipe for hypocrisy? What makes you and I tempted to be hypocrites? Here it is. It's two ingredients. 
you're going to write anything down today, if you're a note taker, write down this. It's an unacknowledged and or unrepentant desire to sin. Okay? Unacknowledged. So you just say, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have that problem. Or unrepentant. Okay, I know I have that problem, but I, I'm not going to do anything about it. I want this sin. Whatever this sin gets me, I want it so bad that I don't mind chasing after it, even at the risk of being exposed as a sinner, and yet I think I can get away with it. So I'm going to have to present myself to the public in one way and then chase after my sin in private. And that's called fear of man, when you care so much about what people think about you that you're not just going to sin in public. See, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had a dilemma. We want to do this, but we know if the people saw us doing that, that'd be it. So we're going to have to do it in private and preach this and say we live this and then have our sin in private. So now you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get the praises of men and you get your sin. That leads to hypocrisy. You are a hypocrite while you're living it, but you're, you're not an outed hypocrite until people find out you're living a different way. Okay, so we normally call people a hypocrite once we know, but we could have hypocrites all around us. And we do. <laughs> Again, on some level, all of us fall guilty to this because everyone's born with an unhealthy fear of man, an unhealthy fear of man. In other words, you care more about what men think about you than God. Okay, so here's a very all-too-common example, very vivid example. Barna's research tells us that uh, close to 70% of men who claim to be Christian in anonymous surveys say they regularly look at pornography. 70% Christians. And 60% of pastors in anonymous surveys say they regularly look at pornography. Ooh. Well, where are these people? Because that's seven out of every ten men in the church. Now, it doesn't mean those statistics have to hold true here, but in Christianity, by and large, 70%. That's, that's a, a terrible statistic. So what is going on there? And when young men come in for counseling in my office in this area... They just say, I can't stop myself. I can't stop myself. I can't, I can't stop myself. Every time I'm in private near a computer, I can't stop myself. I'm like, how about in public? Are you watching it on your smartphone at school in front of everyone? And they're like, no, I wouldn't do that. Why not? That'd be embarrassing. So, well, here's my laptop. Go right ahead. You know, I don't actually want them to, but they're like, I'm not going to do that, Pastor. Why? Because I'd be embarrassed. Well, you're not embarrassed to do it in front of God, but you're embarrassed to do it in front of your friends and, and your pastor and your parents. So what do we have going on there? You know, not to beat the poor guy over the head. He, he needs Christ. He needs grace. He has an unhealthy fear of man and not a healthy enough fear of the Lord, right? And so what do we do? We cultivate fear of the Lord. Not he's going to strike you down, but reverence for God, that God's opinion of me matters more than anyone else's. And God's 
opinion of me, God's love for me, is more than any temporary gratification I'm going to get from looking at these images. I'd much rather hear more than anything, well done, good, good and faithful servant. Okay, so there's hypocrisy then if the person goes in public and says, no, I would never look at those things and it's wrong and it's terrible, it's evil, it's a sin, and then go home and live a different life. There's, there's hypocrisy. People find out, maybe it's a pastor, he gets caught, it makes the news, and we all go, no. That's the last thing we need is for the church, for the bride to have a black eye, especially a religious leader. When a religious leader falls into some kind of scandalous affair or some kind of sin with money they've been embezzling from the church, we all just cringe. That's just what the world's waiting for. It doesn't make front page news when it's one of someone on their team, but when it's someone on our team, it hits the headlines for weeks. Well, we need to talk then about legalism. Because wherever hypocrisy is around, it's cousin legalism is at the party. We like to throw that word around in the church. Oh, they're a legalist, and there's a legalist, and there's a legalist. Well, let's be careful with that term. What is a legalist? A legalist is somebody who adheres to one part of the law to prove they're a good person. Therefore, I'm fit for heaven. So a legalist does not believe in the gospel of grace. Okay? Now, after you accept Christ and you do believe in the gospel of grace, you might act like a legalist in your sanctification by saying, look, I'm sanctified. I don't drink or chew or date girls who do. Okay? See, I am a good person. And, of course, you're blind to all these other sins you're committing that everyone else is like, yeah, but what about that and that and that and that? You know, you've made those three your chief example of your sanctification. It's pretty easy to be completely sanctified in your own mind when you reduce the criteria down to a small list. And in all honesty, nobody even keeps that list perfectly. Okay? So often hypocrites tend to be legalists. Why? Because you have to convince man that you are righteous in your public persona and the best way to do that is to pick three or four, you know, check the box kind of virtues and say, well, see, I come to church every Sunday and I tithe and I da-da-da. I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. When at home, uh, they're completely different. People come into counseling and they'll say, if you saw him at home, you, you don't know who this person really is. And you're like, hmm, aren't we all a different way at church than we're often at home? We tend to relax and let our guard down at home and our true colors come out, which is why the home is the greatest environment for sanctification. Sunday morning is not a great place often for real heart work to happen. It's once you get in the car, <laughs> start yelling at your kids that uh, your true colors come out. So... You know the old joke, you're yelling and screaming at your kids to get in the van and we got to go to church to worship Jesus. You know, and then we get here and we're all, ah, hi, you know. <laughs> Isn't that hypocrisy? Why don't you just walk into the church the way you were in the van? 
I told you we're all guilty of, of this. I'm not sure I'd want to go to that church, though. <laughs> It'd be honest, but... Also, antinomianism, and we'd have to talk about that, because that's the wayward brother of the legalist hypocrite. An antinomian is someone who's anti-law. They're against God's law. I don't even try to keep it. It's all about grace. When Paul said, if God's grace abounds, should we sin all the more so God's grace can abound even more? They go, yes. But Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. And uh, antinomians, they just avoid hypocrisy. They just don't even try to keep a standard in public. (laughs) So... Yeah, I I know that, you know, I'm a sinful person, but God's grace covers it. I'd say America in the 50s was more full of hypocrites than it is now. Now we're full of antinomians, you know. We've, We've gotten rid of the standards. In the 50s, we had this cultural Christianity where there were certain, you know, good Baptists don't do this and they don't do this. And, they, and I was raised Lutheran and we don't do this and we don't do this. And then we'd all go home and, and do the opposite in our private times. Now people just do what it is because there's no shame. They just, they just do it publicly. I'm not saying that there's no hypocrites in the church anymore. I am saying that in general, the tides kind of turned and get out of Kern County for a little while and you'll know what I mean. Okay, we probably still have some cultural fundamentalism here in our little neck of the Bible belt. We're like the, uh, the buckle of the Bible belt all the way here in Kern County. All right, so going back to Mark then, back to our text. So we're going to look at these, these hypocrites and yet we're going to be examining our own hearts. So, here come the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, you know who the Pharisees are. They were the most popular teachers in the synagogue at that time. The Herodians were Jews who were faithful to Herod. Herod, the Herodian dynasty, there were lots of Herods. Lots of Herods. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch. So, what's Tetra? What is that? Where's the math people out there? Four? Is it four? Um, There were four different Herods in four different regions. And this Herod who called himself king of the Jews ruled over Jerusalem. And there was a party of Israelites who were basically, if you can't beat them, join them. We'll get in good with Herod, and he'll give us a good position here and a good title and some, some money. And So they were faithful to Herod. The Pharisees were not pro-Herod. But the funny thing about Jesus is that when he comes on the scene, you end up seeing strange bedfellows. People who normally would not get along decide to form an alliance to get rid of Jesus. And we do see this in society, don't we? Groups who we never thought would get along will get along just long enough to attack a common enemy. We even see this all the way down to the personal relationship level. Every once in a while we'll see a couple who often fights, 
And then they get a common enemy and they turn on a common enemy. People in law enforcement have told me uh, they hate going on a domestic violence call. They try to step in and protect the woman and say something you know, harsh to the husband and suddenly she's turning on the law enforcement officer and now they're in love again. <laughs> and they're beating up on the law enforcement officer. Strange. We are strange people. Praise God for His grace. Um, so the Pharisees and Herodians get together and say, how are we going to get the people to hate Jesus? Hmm. Who do people hate the most? Paying taxes. Paying taxes. Paying taxes. Okay, so here's the trap. At this time, the emperor of Rome, Tiberius Caesar, he's called himself a god. He's not just emperor, he's a god. He's put his face on this coin on the denarius with an inscription that, you know, Caesar is God. Okay, that's a violation of the first commandment and the second commandment. And so the religious leaders would never even carry a denarius on them. Not in public, anyways. What was a denarius? It was the Roman coin, and it was worth one day's wages about. So quite a bit of money. Imagine one day of your paycheck in a single coin that you're carrying around. And every year, uh, all Roman citizens had to pay a poll tax. The word for poll tax in the Greek is the same word for census. So you go to be counted, and now they know who you are and where you live, and you need to give a denarius every year. And the Jews hated to pay this tax. They hated to pay the tax, especially the religious leaders, because they're lovers of money. They don't want to pay taxes. Not because really they had any religious objections, but that's what they told the people. Well, we don't want to pay Caesar. He's calling himself a god, and I don't want to pay taxes to some godless regime. The people didn't like paying the taxes because it's how Rome kept other nations under their thumb, taxed them so heavily that they'll never be powerful enough to make allies or, or pay for, uh, you know, um, what's the word, mercenaries to come and fight with us. Um, keep them dependent on government to keep them quiet. Bread and circuses. Give them lots of food and lots of entertainment. Wow. I could get political here. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So here's the trap. If he says, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, now the people are mad at him. The people are mad at him. And he loses the popularity of the people. If he says, don't pay your taxes... The Herodians are going to go back and tell Herod he's going to get arrested for uh, rebellion or inciting an insurrection, you know. So they've got him, right? They think they've got him. They've got him nailed. And the way they ask the question, first they flatter him. Oh, teacher, rabbi, we know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. You're impartial. You teach the way of God in truth. You know, ironically, all that's true about Jesus. All of it, but they didn't actually mean it. We watch these videos in the Grove sometimes made by a guy who used to work for Disney. They're, they're well done, well animated, but they were done back in the 90s, I think. And they always portray a Pharisee with a big hooked nose, and he's always doing this. <laughs> and he sa- they always talk like this. 
Jesus. Is it lawful for us? The kids just get a kick out of it. And I'm like, that is so anti-Semitic. You know. So I always have to tell the kids, that's probably not what a Pharisee looked or sounded like. Otherwise, nobody would follow them. You know, the wolf is in sheep's clothing, not in wolf's clothing. And so they flatter him and, and say all these nice things to him and force him to, you know, you're going to have to tell the truth. We just said you always tell the truth. So now you're going to have to tell the truth. And then they phrase the question in such a way that Jesus can only give a yes-no answer to really a question that is a multifaceted gray question. You know, this is what American politics, I'm going to get political now, has reduced down to. You get the Christian candidate running for office. Do you believe in evolution? Yes or no? You have five seconds. You know, if he says no, oh, he's one of those wackos. If he says yes, oh, so you're not a Christian then. You know, they're, they're trying to get the guy damned in the eyes of the evangelicals and damned in the eyes of the non-evangelicals. They just don't want the guy to win. So they ask those questions, and I, for the life of me, I don't know why the evangelical candidates keep agreeing for the moderator to be liberal. Why can't some neutral person ask the questions? Or, I guess no one's actually all the way neutral, but come on. Back to our sermon. <laughs> this is what they're doing to Jesus. Asking a question and forcing him to answer in such a way that he, he's going to look bad. And yet Jesus is God. He's wise. He's, he's smarter than they are. This is great stuff. You're like, do you know who you're talking to? On one hand, it makes us excited. On the other hand, it makes us cringe for these people. Do you know who you're talking to? The condemnation you're heaping upon yourself, recorded for all of history. The Bible says, not many should teach. Not many should teach because teachers will receive a greater condemnation if they're teaching uh, lies and, and heresies. So not many should teach, but we need Sunday school teachers. So, <laughs> it doesn't say don't teach. Just know that it's important what you teach. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's and render to God's what is God's. And they're like, they were all amazed. That is not the answer they were expecting. And in essence, what Jesus was saying is, do you think taxes are really your biggest problem? Do you really think that's your problem? I mean, that's what the people wanted. They wanted a revolution. They wanted them to overthrow the Roman government so they could stop paying taxes so they could live a life of prosperity and not be persecuted and hassled by the Romans. It was an honor-shame society, so shameful to be Rome's servant, these Gentiles lording it over us. Such a shameful, dishonorable way to live for, for a Jew. So it was about their honor, and it was about their money, and it was about their standard of living, more than it was about God's glory and His kingdom. And so, in essence, Jesus is calling us all out here in this passage. Look, God has established 
human governments. Romans 13, 1-5, I won't read it. You can mark it down, look it up yourself, or look on the screen. Also, 1 Peter 2, 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1. Tell us to submit to government, submit to human authorities, to human institutions. God has ordained them for the protection of society, to write laws. They're better when the laws are based on God's law. But to write laws and enforce laws, even pagan countries have civil government to keep order in society. And after all, are not those taxes used for building roads, bridges, aqueducts? The Roman government had the greatest army the world had ever seen. They had the Pax Romana. If you were a Roman citizen, you could walk anywhere in the Roman Empire. And if even so much as a hair on your head was harmed, the full fury of the Roman government would come down on your attacker. And it kept everybody safe until the government became corrupt, which doesn't take long because man is corrupt. And yet God does call us to obey civil authority, so pay your taxes before April 15th. (laughs) But more important than paying your taxes, how's your tithe? How's your giving to the Great Commission? How's your evangelism? How's your prayer life? How's your love for one another? How's your compassion and mercy? Are you contributing to God's kingdom or are you more worried about your little half acre up in the hills of Tehachapi? Are you contributing to things that have eternal value or things that are going to die this summer because there's no water? You know, it's not to say we shouldn't have nice things, but certainly when we go too far, we see our hearts in the wrong place. This is a heart check. Render to Caesar's what is Look, it's his coin. God's put him over this government. Emperors rise, they fall. Politicians, they're in office, they're out of office. Nations rise, they fall. Governments come and go. There's always going to be this until Jesus comes back and we live under a monarchy with a perfect king. Amen? And in the meantime, this is what we're stuck with. It's what we're stuck with. So, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. But are you rendering to God what is God's? Are you rendering to God what is God's? Or has your life become so focused on your immediate circumstances, and I didn't get that raise, and everyone else is prospering but me, and, and um, you know, woe is me, woe is me, woe, where's the joy of your salvation? Are you more concerned about being saved from the IRS or saved from your sins? Have you lost the joy of your salvation in the midst of your earthly trials? Not to downplay our trials. Some of you are going through some really difficult trials. And the Lord is with you. He said He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He is there in the midst of your suffering because He suffered like no other man on that cross. He loves you and ordains that suffering our life for our good and our growth. But... Are you at a place in your life where you say, I'm all about God's kingdom, but really, you're about your kingdom? Am I preaching, it's all about God's kingdom, but more worried about my little kingdom? My kingdom's going down, but God's kingdom is forever, because He shall reign 
forever and ever. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom that has no end. His throne is an everlasting throne. So, beloved, where's your hypocrisy this morning? Where are you saying, God's more important to me than Caesar, and yet we're living as if Caesar's more important to us than God? It's not only a chance to repent, but it's a chance for great blessing because when you focus on God's kingdom and you get that proper perspective, life just doesn't seem so bad anymore. Uh, the, the things of life are trivial compared to the things of eternity. As Paul said, we suffer for a little while now. Just for a little while. Nothing compared to the glory to come in God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as hypocrites. Not in the sense, I hope, that it is the defining characteristic of our life. But as those who saved by your grace, Lord, striving to live a sanctified life to bring honor to Christ, we find ourselves caring more about what the world thinks, what we drive, what we wear, who we hang out with, how we decorate our homes. Lord, and we say all that is vanity, vanity, all is vanities, and then we go home and, and it's too important to us. Lord, we complain and grumble about how much we're paying in taxes. And then we enjoy all the things that those taxes purchase. And so, Lord, forgive us. Help us put things in proper perspective. Help us to submit to authority in our lives and ultimately to your authority because all authority comes from you. It's all delegated from you. Lord, help us not to be hypocrites in our homes so that our children will not uh, be tempted to stray from the faith. Help us to not be hypocrites in the workplace that others would not use us as an excuse to stay from away from the church, Lord. But may we live in such a way that we care more about what you think of us, that we would look different, act different, speak different, that people would even say, nobody's that good, nobody can live like that. And when they examine our private lives, they say, well, maybe somebody can. What makes the difference? And we can tell them Jesus. Jesus. Jesus made the difference. Help us this week, Lord. So when we stand before you, we don't hear you call us hypocrites, but you say, well done, good and faithful servant. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.